During the Advent season last month, we, we studied the Christmas story together um, through the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. But there's something that we skipped over um, in those first two chapters, and that's right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, which is a genealogy of Jesus. Um, it's a, basically the, the original family Christmas tree, if you will. <laughs> the family tree of Jesus is, is traced all the way back through David to Abraham, and it contains three groups of 14 names each. And all of those names come with many stories that are told in the earlier chapters of the Bible, um, plainly told with really nothing held back. In fact, if we were to make a movie out of some of any of those stories, um, movie makers would, would uh, give many of them an R rating. Um, and if you were a first uh, century Jewish person reading um, or listening to Matthew's gospel, you would notice by way of this genealogy that Jesus had the rightful messianic king bloodline as the descendant of King David. But there's also um, something rather shocking that you would, um, a shocking abnormality that you would also notice immediately. And that's the inclusion of four women's names into the family tree into the genealogical record. Normally, Jewish genealogies didn't contain names of, of women. Um, in that patriarchal culture, genealogies only included fathers and sons, but never mothers. Uh, but plain as day in that family tree of Jesus in the genealogical uh, record that we find in Matthew chapter one, Matthew includes uh, four names uh, of women, but, but not just any women, four Gentile women. And the inclusion of these names beckons the reader to go back and read uh, their stories or accompanying stories in the Old Testament. They invite us to go back and examine the kinds of people God worked through and the stories that he sovereignly wove together to bring Jesus, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, into the world. And so as we begin this new year as a church family, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to flip back to our Old Testament and study the story behind one of these four Gentile names that we find in the family tree of Jesus, and that's Ruth, the Moabite. Uh, Levi leave already um, or just read for us a, a creative rated G synopsis of that story written by my friend Dan Vorm, but the, the full story is a little messier than that. So if you brought your Bible um, with you today as you tuned into this Zoom call, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. You know, it's a short book that's fairly easy to miss. It's tucked right between the larger books of Judges and 1 Samuel. So go ahead and open your Bibles, flip to that. Over the next eight weeks, uh, we plan to work our way through the, the four short chapters of this beautiful Old Testament narrative in a sermon series that we've entitled Ruth from Re Ruin to Redemption. It's a book that's uh, meant to be read as it is written, a story. And that's how we're going to read it together. We, we aren't going to skip to the end. We're, we're going to um, feel and sit in the tension of the narrative as we go along. Many have described the book of Ruth as a love story. And, and there is love in the story. But it's also a story, story of tragedy and loss. Two of the main characters in the story, Naomi and Ruth, lose everything. And much of the narrative is about them attempting to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives. And this is really the primary reason that I've chosen for us to go through this Old Testament book together. Um, we stand here at the beginning of 2022. Um, but for all of us, the past couple of years haven't gone as planned. In fact, this morning hasn't even gone as planned as we start a new year. Um, 
But for some of us, the, the pandemic has really only caused minor inconveniences, but for many others, it's caused major life upheaval. Um, and a handful of us have, have even experienced the significant tragedy of losing a loved one. But what are we to do when um, tragedy and loss enter our world? H how do we process the grief that goes along with, with living in a broken world? Where is God in the midst of the pain? Is he still in control? Does he even care? Um, those are all questions. They're difficult questions. But they're all questions we're going to wrestle with as we work our way through the, the narrative of Ruth. And, and what we're going to do this, together this morning is just dip our toe into the narrative. This isn't going to be a long sermon, drawn out sermon this morning, but we're, we're just going to dip our toe into it and look at the first five verses of the book and a little of the historical background for this Old Testament story. So if you're taking notes, um, we're simply going to highlight one observation and one question together. One observation and one question. The observation is about a common mistake that people make when life doesn't go as planned. And the question is about the presence and posture of God in the midst of our grief. So let's dive in. Uh, by reading the first five verses of the book of Ruth together. And you can follow along with your Bibles or um, with the words on the screen if, if uh, the screen share is working properly here. Ruth chapter one, verses one through five. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlan and Chilion. That's how you pronounce them in Hebrew. <laughs> they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and they, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Machlan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the, the story of Ruth begins with this timestamp that helps us to place it in the context of history at approximately 1100 BC. The author tells us that it took place in the days that the judges ruled. So this is after God had rescued the Israelites from slavery, slavery in Egypt and brings them through the wilderness and into the promised land under the leadership of Moses. So it's between that and the days of Joshua. I'm sorry, it's after the days of Joshua, but before the days of the monarchy. Um, so the, the Exodus is told in the Old Testament books of, of Exodus, um, and the, the conquering of the land is told in the book of Joshua. Um, but then there's this in-between period before the monarchs come, you know, King Saul and King David, um, and that in-between period is recorded in a book that's aptly named Judges, because that's when these guys and gals called the Judges ruled over Israel. Um, and since we don't have, really have time to go back and examine the book of Judges today, I'll, I'll just give you a really quick synopsis of, of the book. Uh, throughout the book of Judges is a very troubling but predictable cycle of events. You see, the Israelites consistently fall into sin, rebellion, and idolatry, and then God sends difficulty into their lives, an invasion from hostile enemies to take them captive. 
And in the midst of their misery, the people of God realize they've wandered away and they cry out to God in repentance for relief. And in response, God raises up a judge who fights on behalf of the people, delivers them from their enemies, sets them free, and then the people return to serving God. But it doesn't take long for the cycle to repeat itself. Pretty soon the people forget about God, turn their backs on him again, um, fall into sin and idolatry. Judgment comes, they repent again. God sends, raises up another judge to rescue them. And it, it's this cycle over and over and over again. And it's not just a, a cycle, it, it's more like a, a downward spiral. Um, the sin of the people gets worse. The rescuers, the judges also decrease in character. Uh, as the book goes on, and it's, it's a time of instability and disruption. And, and the end of the book of Judges is a very, there's a very fitting verse that summarizes the whole book. It, it's Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's in the middle of all this chaos that we find our story of an Israelite family of four, a husband, wife, and two sons who, who live in the town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is quite familiar to our ears because of the Christmas story as the um, town of David where Jesus was born. But in those days, it was just a small town of little consequence, about five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a compound name in Hebrew, um, bet meaning house, lechem meaning bread. So, so the town literally means house of bread, the town name, which is ironic here because there's a famine in the land. In other words, the house of bread has no bread. Let's read verse one again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, keep in mind that the setting of the story is an agrarian society with subsistence living. They didn't have a fully stocked Trader Joseph's grocery store in every town. If it didn't rain, there wouldn't be crops. If there weren't crops, there wasn't food for the people or their livestock. The livestock would die and the people would literally starve to death. What we've got a picture here in our minds as the setting of this story is the most severe and dire situation that we can think of in a third world country. You know, picture malnourished children with distended bellies, hollow looking eyes, dying, literally dying in their mother's arms. That, that's what we need to envision when we read just that simple phrase, there was a famine in the land. So, so what's our family of four to do in this situation? Well, the original Jewish audience under the Mosaic covenant would have immediately known the answer. When God sent famine, what were the people of God to do? Well, repent, <laughs> repent of sin, turn to God, cry out to him for help, and he would deliver them. He would rescue them. But instead of crying out to God, we read here that Elimelech took his family on a sojourn in the country of Moab. And right here, time out, <laughs> you would have heard an audible gasp from the original audience. Red flags are going up, alarm bells are going off um, in their minds of the, the, the original Jewish readers of this story or hearers of this story. Hold on to that thought for just a minute. Let's look at verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites. That's a regional Jewish clan of the half tribe, tribe of Ephraim from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So Elimelech is the name of the patriarch of this family. And his name means in Hebrew, my God is king. 
And he's married to Naomi, whose name means pleasant, kind, or sweet. And they have two boys, Machlan and Chilion, whose names respectively mean sickly and frail. Now, now um, those are likely not their real names, because what parent is going to name their kid sickly or frail? Uh, what's probably going on here is that the author has tweaked the spelling of the names, their actual names, in order to create a kind of pun, name pun, here, or what's called a nomen omen, an ominous sign via a name of what is to happen to these characters in the story. And here again in verse two, the author repeats the fact that they went into the country of Moab, but then he or she adds a short phrase at the end of the verse that again would have made up um, or made the original Jewish audience gasp. Um, did you catch it? Look at the, the end of verse two. They went into the country of Moab and what? And remained there. They didn't just go there to buy food. They went there and stayed. Now, why would this have been shocking to the original audience? Let me just give you a little bit of historical background. Moab is the land to the, the east, southeast of the promised land and is what is now uh, modern day Jordan. It was populated by, by pe a people group at that time that was founded through an incestuous relationship between Abraham's brother Lot and one of Lot's daughters. It's a very sad and quite disgusting story that you can read about in Genesis chapter 19. And the name Moab is actually a compound name. Mo meaning who, and Ab or Ab meaning father. So literally Moab, Moab means who's your daddy. Um, and Moab and Israel were, were not on friendly terms to say the least. Not only did the Israelites look down on them because of their um, incestuous origins, the, the Moabites were steeped in idolatry and sexual immorality that went along and the sexual immorality that went along with their idolatry and were bitter enemies of God's chosen people. Um, during the Israelite exodus out of Egypt, the king of, of Moab was the one who hired the prophet Balaam to come and curse Israel. And that's a story you can read about in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And when that didn't work, Moabite women seduced the Israelite men in Numbers 20, chapter 25 and invited them to worship their false gods which they did. And this, of course, resulted in, in severe judgment from God upon Israel. In more recent history pertaining to the time of period of the judges, the Moabite king Eglon had been oppressive to the Israelites. And it was only when the left-handed judge named Ehud killed Eglon with a dagger that the people of Israel were delivered. You can read about that in Judges chapter 3. All that to say, Moab is not a good place, not a good place morally, theologically, politically. And it was unthinkable for any self-respecting Israelite to leave the promised land and take a sojourn into the land of Moab, let alone remain there for any period of time. The promised land is where the blessings, the protection, the provision, the presence of God uh, was found. That's where the one true God, Yahweh, was found and his, his favor. And the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And for an Israelite to take themselves and their family out of the promised land and run to the land of Moab was nothing less than turning them back on the one true God. What Elimelech is doing here and how he's leading his family is a big problem. Not only is Elimelech abandoning the promised land, he's abandoning the covenant with God. 
Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, Leviticus chapter 26, make it abundantly clear that when Israel, Israel was obedient to God, he would send blessing and favor, provision for them. But when they disobeyed and rebelled against them, he would do things like withhold the rain and there would be a famine. The crops would fail. And this would serve to the Israelites as a warning light for them to turn back to God and be faithful to him. So when famine hits, it's not something to run away from. It's a flashing warning light on the dashboard of life meant to draw the people of Israel back to God. But instead of turning to God, Elimelech runs the other direction. And the irony here is that the man whose name means my God is king decides that he's going to be the king of his own life. He's not going to kneel before God in repentance and turn to God. No, he's going to do his own thing in his own way. He's really epitomizing the summary verse of the book of Judges that we read earlier. In that day, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Elimelech is denouncing his own name here, which means my God is king. He's turning his back on God as king. He's making himself king and doing what is right in his own eyes. And so here's our one main observation for this morning. Our one main observation, our human instincts amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. Our human instincts amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. When, when life isn't going well, when things don't go as we had planned, our, our first instinct is to assume that God has let us down. He's failed us. And our second instinct is then to turn our back on him and take matters into our own hands. And I've seen it so many times in my own life and the lives of others. The reality is that the same sufferings that cause us to turn to God can also make us turn our backs on God. When we are experiencing loss and pain and heartache and grief, it will either drive the roots of our faith very deep into who God is, or if we follow our normal human instincts, it actually uproots our faith. And when we become self-reliant and our faith grows, when we become self-reliant, our faith grows cold and distant and anemic, and we end up walking through our suffering and pain alone. And that's what Elimelech uh, did here. His instinct was to turn his back on God, take matters into his own hands, and lead his family into Moab of all places. That's the natural bent of, of all of our hearts when life isn't going well, if we're very honest with ourselves. But my friends, self-reliance is always self-destructive. Uh, we read in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And that brings us to verses three through five in our narrative, where things go from bad to worse. And in these verses, the author um, uses a, a unique literary, literary style that is almost staccato-like. It's really choppy, um, terse, unfeeling, unemotional. Um, we don't get extended details in these verses, just brute, cold, hard facts, one after the others, that, like dominoes falling. And I want you to feel the coldness in these verses as we read them together. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the, other, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Machlan and Chilion died so that the woman was left with 
without her two sons and her husband. You know, a 10-year nightmare summed up just like that in three short verses. One tragedy after another, after another. First, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi widowed. And in an agrarian patriarchal society, this is particularly devastating. There was no life insurance, um, no social security. Women had very few legal rights in that day. Um, they were not allowed to inherit property. Um, but at least Naomi still had her two sons, right? At the end of verse three, <laughs> there's hope for her. They, they could inherit the property, work the fields, care for her in her old age. Things aren't too bad um, here in verse three. But again, you'd hear a gasp from the original audience at the beginning of verse four. These two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Intermarriage with Moabites has not worked out well for the Israelites in the past. And this is indicative of a further step away from God, a step away from God that lasts for 10 years, the text tells us. Naomi and her two sons don't return to the promised land after Elimelech dies. No, they, they choose instead to settle into life in Moab. Um, again, remember our observation. Our human instincts amid, amid troubling circumstances are often misguided. And what is missing in verse four is any record of offspring from these two marriages with the Moabite women. The implication here is that Orpah and Ruth are barren, they're childless, there are no further sons, no further heirs. And then at the beginning of verse five, it gets worse. Both of Naomi's sons die and, and she's left without a husband and, and without sons and she's in utter destruction and destitution. There, there's no one to work the fields and earn income. There's no one to protect and defend if there's a legal, legal issue. There's no way to pass on property through an inheritance. Naomi has lost everything and there's no future. There's no hope uh, for her. Um, now in Israel, there was a kind of societal safety net um, for situations like this. It was called leveret marriage. If a widow was left without an heir, it was her deceased husband's brother's responsibility to marry her and produce offspring for her so that the property could stay in the family. Um, so it would have been a Limelech's brother's responsibility to marry Naomi. But the problem here, of course, is that Naomi is well beyond childbearing years. And we don't even know if a Limelech had a brother. So there's really no hope in this situation. Naomi's household now consists only of her and two barren Moabite women who are also widows. This is about as bad as it can get for an Israelite woman in Naomi's time and culture. No security, no future, no hope. Living outside of the promised land, outside of God's protection and provision in God-forsaken Moab. And that's where we exit our story for today. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> but, but seriously, I, I want us to feel the tension and the tragedy that the original audience would have felt um, at this point in the story. And I want for us to ask the question that the original audience would have asked um, if they were hearing this story for the first time, not, now, not knowing how it was going to end. And that, that one question is this. If we turn our backs on God, does he turn his back on us? If we turn our backs on God, does he also turn his back on us? 
What's going to happen to Naomi? Does God still care about her? Will, will he be merciful to her? Where is God in this story? Where is God when tragedy strikes? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out, hopefully in person, which we plan to meet back at Waverly Belmont. But before we wrap up, I, I want to point out one last historical detail. Yeah, you know, we don't know who authored the book of Ruth. Um, Jewish tradition attributes it, attributes it to Samuel, but, but many scholars believe that the story was passed down through oral tradition and put into writing probably sometime during the exilic period of Israel's history between 586 and 516 BC. If that's the case, the original readers of this book were, were people, Israelite people who had been violently carried out of the promised land and were displaced in Babylon as a result of God's judgment against them for turning their backs on God and letting sin and idolatry, idolatry run rampant among them. And so the original audience, if that's the case, the original audience would have a burning question in their minds. Every Israelite exile would have been asking this question living in Babylon. Since we turned our backs on God, has he now completely turned his back on us? What's going to happen to us? Does God still care about us? Will he be merciful to us? Where is God in the middle of our pain? And perhaps you're wrestling um, with those same questions this morning. If so, I think you're going to be encouraged by our time together in this short Old Testament book. It's a story within a much greater story in which we too uh, play a part. It's a story within a grand epic tale of redemption, a story in which God is redeeming a people for himself, bringing them from despair to delight and from hurt to hope. Let's pray together. Father, we look forward to our journey through this Old Testament narrative over the next seven or eight weeks. We're grateful for your word and how it speaks to um, the brokenness that we all experience and what we're to do with that and the grief that we all um, encounter. And your posture towards us in that and your, your, your presence with us. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would open our hearts to your spirit as we learn from your word as a, as a faith community in coming weeks and months. We're grateful for a new year. We're, we're grateful for your new mercies to meet us as we step into 2022. And we look to you for hope, for guidance, uh, for uh, wisdom. And we look to you for, for growth, Lord, in our hearts, uh, spiritually. Bend our hearts away from their natural inclinations towards you. Grow the, the, the roots of our faith deeper this year, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we wrap up, uh, we want to, as is our custom, leave you with some reflection and response questions. Um, and those, we have three of them for you this morning. Uh, what is one significant thing that you learned from the historical background surrounding the book of Ruth? In what ways have you experienced um, upheaval in life from circumstances not working out as you had hoped or planned? Um, sorry for the misspelling of have there in that uh, reflection. <laughs> and thirdly, uh, what have been your natural instincts during those times? Do you tend... Um, 
to run toward God or away from him and why? We'll leave these questions up for a little while, um, but we uh, want to thank you for tuning in this morning. Um, we look forward to seeing you in person next week back at Waverly Belmont. And we ask that uh, uh, as you uh, process these questions with your friends, with your family, that God will work through them. And I want to commission you to go and be the church this week where you live, work, learn, and play. God bless. You're dismissed.